Playoff time is when things start getting serious on the court. Players are more driven than ever to win these big games and keep advancing. Goodyear knows all about being more driven, too. Working hard to help you advance on and off the road. Let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best. Hello, hello. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just happy to cash that check, my man. Woo, cashing checks. Cashing checks. Where you at, Nick? You're in Chicago, right? I'm in Chicago. I was telling Mr. Han, I just, <laughs> I just watched Bulls Magic. It was so bad. It was so, so bad. It's Tuesday on the Hoop Collective. I'm Andrew Hahn. Joining me from Naples, Florida, after uh, being released from his stint in Bristol, Connecticut, after the trade deadline, we have Bobby Marks. Hello, everyone. From Chicago, uh, still in that winter wonderland, we have Mr. Nick Verdell. <laughs> and what a party it is, guys, because I just watched Bulls and Magic last night. Woo! Woof! Woo! And in Boston... Uh, the first to witness the new look Cavaliers, we have Chris Forsberg. What's up, guys? I was going to go golfing with George Lopez today, but I decided instead <laughs> to join you all. Chris, the Cavs obviously made the mo- most noise at the trade deadline, but you were the first uh, the first man on the scene to actually see what that team looked like. Uh, can you give us your quick impressions? So my quick impression is like they look the first night that Isaiah Thomas came back, they looked really good, and everyone was like, "Wow, you know." hey, this is going to be the team moving forward, and then the wheels came off again. I mean, they definitely look better, and they look happy, and that's a good thing, but uh, I still want to see it over a longer period of time before I'm ready to to, to say that this is the, the fix. I do think, like, their ceiling isn't as high anymore because, like, if Isaiah had ever gotten back to the level he could have got to, I feel like they could have been really competitive. And I still think they're the best team in the East because they have LeBron. We have many, many weeks and months to litigate whether this was good for the Cavs or bad for the Cavs or whether it puts them over the top or makes them competitive with the Warriors. Uh, the thing that I really want to dive into, because not many other podcasts have the expertise of a, of a front office executive, Bobby, can you walk us through? Because it seems like an innumerable number of phone calls and trades that the Cavs had to deal with that day. Well, yeah. I mean, it just didn't happen at 1030. <laughs> 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 they put a call into the Lakers in <laughs> Sacramento and uh, Utah. They said and said, "Hey, let's do this deal." <laughs> this had been um, this has been working in a work in progress for a couple weeks. I think the first part was that they they had a framework for the George Hill part uh, about two weeks ago. So you, you knew that was in place um, if that was the direction you wanted to go with you know Shumpert and Fry. Um, uh, a lot of it was had to do with the way that team had been playing, this Cleveland team had been playing. I mean, this team had taken on some serious water here um, and was not going to go, going to go anywhere um, if, uh, if they did not make a, tr- a deal. But, yeah, I mean, going into um, going into the deadline the week of, I, I, we always told our, the people in, when I was in New Jersey, you know, from the finance department to our trainers, to be prepared. And because it's one thing to, to agree upon a deal, but it's another thing when you have to start sharing all the medical information, 
um, talking with your finance people. If, um, you know, in Cleveland's case, they had to send money to um, to Sacramento. Um, I think two point one million dollars to get approval to make sure your ownership is on board. There is a lot of different logistics that to come into play, and to get all that done, um, you know, what Cleveland was able to do on on Thursday is pretty remarkable. I mean, it really is. I mean, we we made trades in in uh, New Jersey and Brooklyn. Uh, we made the kid trade in '08, and but that was um, you know a couple days before the deadline, uh, and that was I think seven or eight players. But we were in the lottery then. Um, but to do that, um, and really, and the Leica piece never really ever got out until Thursday morning, um, really changed the course of, it changed, what it did was it opened up the trade market. Mm-hmm. I mean, once that deal happened, then we started to see a little bit of a flurry of, um, you know, of other moves. Right. And you had said that, like, uh, it seemed like they'd put the framework of some of these other deals in place uh, as far as a few weeks back. But, like, even before setting up a framework of like maybe this guy for this guy like how early do these teams start talking to each other just to even get a sense of what pieces are out there it it's the whole it's the whole season i mean it's not like it's you know we they, teams wait just until the, the the trade deadline uh i'm sure kobe altman had a notebook of players that would be available and what you do is you kind of go back the the week leading up to say Maybe Jordan Clarkson in November or December was not available. Maybe the intent was for the Lakers to keep him during the season, and let, let's see if maybe they sh- could shed his contract um, in July. But when you know when when it's presented that for you know Magic Johnson, Rob Plinka to get two expiring contracts and Channing Frye, and also their Cle- in the in Cleveland pick, um, that's something that's that's appealing to them. But now you you keep a you keep a journal all year as far as what teams are going to be, uh, what players are going to be available. Um, you never want to kind of overlap and ask the same question twice and, or, or, you know, ask, the, you know, that dumb trade request that people <laughs> hang up the phone on when you're probably calling about Kawhi Leonard or Marcus Sell and you know, they're not available. Why are you calling again? Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean the, the, um, you know, going back to the Laker piece, I think it's sort of, it, 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 sometimes it's just about timing. Um, it serves sometimes it, it serves to both teams or accomplishes the, the goals of both teams. The Cleveland needed to get better now, even at taking back Clarkson's contract with Nance and the Lakers wanted to, look, to shed salary and they, and they both did it. Bobby, how does the money thing work? Does like, does Dan Gilbert just Venmo some money to, to, <laughs> to, to like these different people? Like, how do you, how do you just get $2.1 million to another team? Well, you have, you know, this year the money uh, increased a little bit with the new CBA. You have five point one million dollars that you can, um, you have, you can send or receive in trades. They had already sent money out in the Atlanta deal when they sent um, Jeff, Richard Jefferson to there before the season started to get rid of his contract. But yeah, you know, you um, you do the trade call, you agree upon the the the, um, the parameters. Um, the, Utah also sent money too. Um, but you say, well, we'll wire the money in 30 days or 60 days. You know, you agree upon the days that, um, you know, when, when the money goes out. And then you, you've got to get your finance people a stamp of approval on that. Um, the last thing you want to do is agree to it. And then your, your finance, you know, say, you know what? Can we can we go back and wait until the, the summer when we get ticket revenue coming in? <laughs> Maybe we're a little bit short on a cash flow, but that's how the money um, takes on. And then from a salary standpoint, you inherit the contract what is owed on the contract, what is owed left on there. So 
at the trade deadline, if 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 um, Lakers had already paid Jordan Clarkson 120 days of, of service, uh, then Cleveland would take on the remaining 57 days uh, mm-hmm. for for salary. They just basically inherit that. Bobby, what are the emotions like as a front office when you know you've either made a move or several moves uh, where <laughs> you've improved your team? Because I'm sitting there watching Kobe Altman on Sunday at that Celtics game, and I'm reading his quotes from the conference call right after all the deals went down, and that guy was pumped. He <laughs> he, he knew that he had done uh, he had done well uh, in the moves that he had made, and he was feeling really good about both himself and where the team was headed. Well, you, you just and you just never know. That's the hard part is that it's one thing to do make a trade and have your personnel people give you guidance as far as how these players are going to fit. Um, but it's, and, and I think Kobe probably had the same feeling or, you know, I know Isaiah was the, the concern with his health, but when he did the, the, the Boston trade the summer that Isaiah healthy, Jay Crowder healthy, whenever that Brooklyn pick comes would be part of the fu- future here and that we would still have a championship team and you guys see how that turned out. Um, but until they start, until you get on the court and you see these players and remember they only, I don't think they even had a practice together. Um, I mean, I think some of them practice, but the trade was still, waiting for physicals, but you just never know. I mean, until they start playing, um, it's, it's hard to get a judgment as far as how far this team, um, is going, but I'm sure Kobe Allman went to bed on Wednesday night, knowing that these deals were out there. And and as I said before, the hardest part is the waiting game, the wait for either the Lakers or Utah or Sacramento to come back and say, yes, we will do the deal. Uh, the worst part is when they come back and say, we're going to go in a different direction. Because oh. that totally will screw you up for the whole day, especially when it comes on. Uh, you know, you've got, you know, the clock's ticking. You've got, you know, four or five hours to do a deal. I always imagine when these initial, initial trade talks go, uh, go around, especially if like higher profile names are involved, that it's something like Cold War negotiations where the general managers don't actually call each other because there's too many people around. So it's, like a scout for one team knows the brother of a scout for the other team. And they say like, Hey, is this guy available? Or like, what are you guys thinking about? Does it work like that, Bobby? Like, is there clandestine cloak and dagger stuff that goes on initially to feel both sides out before it goes up to executives? No, I mean, in, in, in Brooklyn and in New Jersey, we kind of split up the teams that we dealt with. Um, and we would, uh, we had, I had better relationships with certain teams than maybe Billy King did, uh, Billy King did. Um, that, that's usually how it, how it comes about. Oh. I mean, there are times that, um, you know, our scouts would say, Hey, I'm hearing that, um, Tyreek Evans is available and this is what they're looking for. Um, so that kind of sets the, the wheels in motion. If, if a player, if you want to go after a player like that, um, but nothing really, you know, I mean, a lot of deals, you know, when we did the Darren Williams trade in 2011, I guess, mm-hmm. that came out of like nowhere. <laughs> I mean, it really did. And and basically what Utah was waiting for was whatever team missed out on Carmelo Anthony, that was going to be their target. Mm-hmm. And once we missed mm-hmm. out, they, they placed a call and said, hey, we would be interested in moving Darren Williams and this is what it would cost. Um, and where Carmelo took six months to try to do. I mean, I had a binder on my desk for Carmel Anthony of every trade option possible. Um, and it was, it was, you know, a hundred pages and I probably had three pages for Darren Williams. And it just, that's just how it goes. I mean, it's, it's incredible that you even had three pages. Cause I remember at the time, like no one even, well, at least publicly, no one even sniffed that he was available. 
No, we we didn't. I mean, basically what happened was we found out that Carmelo had been or agreed to go to New York, I think either that Monday after the All-Star Tuesday. Um, and then we kind of like, let's say we said, let's regroup t- tomorrow um, and figure out what we want to do. And then I remember going upstairs to, to meet with our, you know, all the our front office people and Billy saying, like, Darren Williams is on available. Elbow, this is what it would cost and it was basically half the package that we would have had to send to denver and it just made you know at the time it, it, it made sense to to, to kind of go down that path is negotiating the trade like like i just assume it's like a car dealership you walk in and, and no one gives their best offer first but is there ever a time when like another gm calls and says here's what we offer and you're like yeah actually let's <laughs> let, let's do that like does that ever happen rarely <laughs> really, yeah. I mean, even, even the um, Chris, even the infamous Boston trade that you know everyone talks about. I mean, that that deal started in the winter. Uh, I think January of two thousand thirteen, when you know the Celtics didn't know what direction they wanted to go and were maybe um, seeing what the the price of Pierce would be, um, and it, it it didn't go much. It didn't go very far. And then the conversation really started in, um, uh, I remember a Sunday in like mid-May, um, talking with, you know, Mike Zarin, their assistant GM, and that deal didn't get done until six weeks later. And a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, there was a domino effect because, you know, the deal would have only been really pierced, but Doc goes to the Clippers, right? They go in a different direction. Garnett all of a sudden becomes available because they figure, well, he's not going to want to stay there. And that's kind of how that that kind of you know snowballed there. Nick, before we started, you revealed yourself to be a, a budding connoisseur of terrible basketball. So <laughs> you want to give us a, a little bit of perspective on, on the new race to tank? Oh, my gosh. Guys, anyone who watched the end of that Bulls Magic game last night, I mean, more power to you. Because that truly, that, the, the last probably seven, eight minutes of that game, that was some of the the very worst basketball I've 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 seen since I've been doing this job for the last nine ten years. It was brutal. On top of the fact that all these years I've been going to the United Center and they always are sold out or close to it. And you walk in last night at seven ten Central Time, <laughs> and that place was half empty, half empty. <laughs> At the United Center in Chicago. So, uh, look, it was their third home game in four nights, which is strange. And there was so much emotion after beating Tibbs and Jimmy on Friday in the Timberwolves. But the reality is there are going to be a lot of a lot of games that look like the one I watched uh, last night because there are so many teams that are tanking. And, and Bobby, I mean, you. But, but Nick, there's so many teams that are bad, bad at tanking, right? Right, right. <laughs> the exactly. Problem. There are bad teams and there are tanking teams and there then there are teams that are bad at tanking. <laughs> they fit into both categories. I, I guess my biggest thing is 
you know, as I'm watching two tanking teams, because so let's not get this twisted at all. The Bulls, while well, the it's not on it's not on players and coaches to tank. It's on the front office to tank. Uh, it's on the front office to set up a team uh, to to be as uh, as poor as it can possibly be. But as we watch around the league at all these teams down the stretch here, do we really believe that the the new legislation that Adam Silver put out going into next season? is going to make that much of a difference when so many teams so desperately want to be as, as low as they can possibly go. Well, I mean, I think there's a, uh, I think there's a difference between like tanking, like, which means like basically Phoenix saying, you know what? Devin Booker is not going to play the last six months, six weeks of the season. <laughs> that is tanking. Um, I think there's a, or compared to, uh, a, a team coming out and say, you know what, we're going to start instead of Robin Lopez playing 30 minutes a night, we're going to start playing him 15 to 20 minutes a night because we really want to look at our young bigs there. Um, I think that's more of a direction for teams to go. I don't think that uh, the league should not have a problem with that because you, I mean, the, the, the argument is that you want to look at your young players for the future. I mean, that's the that's what you're that is what you're going to see. You know, over um, over the next uh, two two months here is with you know the teams that are you know probably except for you know like t- Brooklyn who doesn't have their pick mm-hmm. um, you know te- teams like that is there you are going to see a, an extended preseason for teams not in the playoff. That's what it's going to look like. Where minutes are going to look like um, guys who are you know it's almost like a tryout period. Um, you know, we went uh, Nick, we went through that year in oh nine ten where. It was interesting because we were on the on the brink of breaking the record for fewest wins in a season. And how do you deal with like I don't want to say tank. We were trying to win games at the end because we didn't want to we didn't want to go into the record books having won ten games in in a uh, in a season. But I learned that year, and we weren't um, looking to throw games or you know or lose games on purpose. But winning twelve games did us nothing. Because at the end, we went into the lottery with the most balls, and we wound up, instead of getting John Wall, we wound up getting Derek Favors at pick three. And that is the risk when you go down that path. Um, but I think in this year's draft, if you are, uh, if you can get in the top six, top seven, then you're going to be in pretty good shape there. So, so there's eight teams right now, I think 17 to 20 wins. You got the Knicks trying to get into that group. Like when you guys look at the bottom of the standings, which team could potentially like if they get a good lottery pick this year bounces back the quickest? Is it like the Bulls? Is it the Suns? Like Dallas? Which which team do you guys think has the chance has the most incentive? I guess to get down as low as they can. Well, I'm biased here, guys, but I absolutely think it's the Bulls. I absolutely think it's the Bulls because I'm a believer in marketing. I, uh, Pax, both Pax and John Pax and the, the Bulls executive VP and uh, Zach Levine have both said they're going to find a way to get a deal done. And then you've got Chris Dunn, who's playing better, or who could be used as a potential trade chip uh, this summer to, to get something else back. And then they've got a bunch of cap space. Uh, and, and some of that, obviously, we go to Levine if they make that deal happen. But I, I think they are very close as far as a rebuild goes to going from 
the absolute bottom to to some relevance here again. Well, I, I, the one team I think who needs to be in the top three is Memphis. <laughs> I really oh, do. Yeah. Yep. I mean, they know they need an infusion um, of youth there, and I know that some of the younger players, you know, the Wayne Selden, Dylan Brooks, guys like that, have, have played well this year when 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 they're on the court. But where Mike Conley is right now, and Marcus Saul, player Chandler Parsons, um, they need a top three, top four pick, and really based on their pick going to Boston next season, that's protected. Um, so here could be the, the one of the golden opportunities for a team that always, you know, has missed out on the draft. Really has um, mm-hmm. to kind of reload a little bit, and maybe they get back into that 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 you know in the mix with the Portlands and the Clippers and uh, those teams that are fighting for uh, for a foot playoff spot. Bobby, here's the here's what I was thinking the entire night watching that Bulls game. I mean, I know full well no member of the Bulls front office, no member. Uh, of of their staff is going to say the word tank because it's just it, it, there's that's a dirty basketball word and it upsets people within the fan base but as you're watching a game against a team that is a game or two even below where where they're at in Orlando if you're gar and you're sitting there watching the game are you hoping that your team blows it or are you hoping that your younger guys make plays down the stretch uh, and show that they can win, uh, and and you live with whatever happens. I'm hoping my younger guys make uh, plays down down a stretch, and whatever happens happens. And as yep. long as these players don't start picking up bad habits, I think that's the worst thing that can happen. Nick is that you start to. I think the goal when you go into a season is that you know how does um, marketing get better from day one, from preseason to the end of the season, and how do they not pick up bad habits here? And I think. If you if you go down the direction of losing or you know putting not a good product out there, I think that cre- that, that certainly um, that starts to, to to creep in there. Yeah, I remember two seasons ago in Boston, like right when they acquired Isaiah Thomas, every, like even their fans were kind of kind of hoping that the Celtics would would just start losing games because they were sort of a I mean a, a fringe playoff team at best, and it was like, why are you gonna try to get into the playoffs and just to get bounced by the Cavs in the first round? But like Boston put a premium on its young guys experiencing a little bit of winning. They thought that Isaiah would help them in the long run. I don't even know if they thought Isaiah was enough to, to boost them into the playoffs that year. But once they got there, it really snowballed. And you could tell because they came back the next season and they were so energized by that run that it just sort of took off from there. So I do, you know, and that's a tough spot. That's a team like Detroit now. Do they, you know, I think they have to obviously have to get in Blake, but you know, they're in that, they're still, I think, three games out. And it, it, at a point, you sit there and say, well, is it worth it to make that push or is it better to get those lottery balls? I think a lot of teams struggle with that decision. And so I do think there's a value. If, you, if you're in limbo, if you don't know you're a tanking team, it's probably better to just go for it and just hope that those, those good habits do, do spill over. I mean, Detroit, they, I mean, that, that pick is going on in the Clippers. I know it's a little, it's got some light protection on there. Like Detroit and New Orleans, who kind of, I mean, those were the two teams that really could not afford trading a first round pick and not, and missed the playoffs. I mean, if, if you're going to trade first round picks with the goal of getting into the playoffs and you miss out, I mean, there are some major, there will be some major repercussions in that front <laughs> office there. Really will. <laughs> Bobby, what, what I was going to ask is that as you're sitting there, then if you're guard and you're saying, and, and the Bulls, you're saying, okay, you know what? I want my younger players to experience wins. 
But you know full well what the odds are, and you know what the standings look like. So then you don't get draft lottery luck with the ping pong balls. So now all of a sudden you have gone from potentially the fifth or sixth pick to the ninth pick. When you're sitting there on draft night, do you think about, oh, man, we should have blown that game to the Magic uh, in the middle of February? <laughs> well, you know, it's, you, know, you, know, you know what the remarkable thing is, Nick, is that Philadelphia was able to do that for, you know, for, what, three seasons to go through that? Yeah. I mean, like, and we're only talking about a Chicago team where, you know, we're, uh, I guess, three-quarters of the way in. Um, and that that's like, like I, that's why when we talk about Philly and trust the process, like I remember going to those games and having like 8,000 people in there and being freezing cold in January. And that team was like four and 30. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, if you can stomach it and go through it, I think only teams can stomach it for a year. I mean, I, I don't see I, it's hard or if you have, or unless you have a patient owner that gives you enough rope to, to do it for multiple years. But um, yeah, I think Nick, if you have a good enough personnel department, you'll find players if it's at nine or if it's at five, I, I really do. Hey, Bobby, we recently took a poll of all of the contributors for the hoop collective. And I noticed that you are a big country fan. Yeah, I am. And I'm waiting for Luke Bryan or... Zach Brown Band to come down here to Southwest Florida. Yeah, that's really surprising. I thought you'd be the only one to list uh, Luke Bryan or Zach Brown Band. I've never. It's clear I've never heard of these people in my life. But Tim McMahon, a couple of other people also put them down. Um, when was the last time you saw any of them in concert? Uh, I have never seen them in concert. Well, you know what? The last concert I went to was uh, Bon Jovi. And oh, when okay. I was in New Jersey, and I did use SeatGeek to get my tickets to go see Bon Jovi. Why didn't you list Bon Jovi as one of your favorite bands? Well, once I moved from the Northeast, I lost all my ties to my Jersey bands. <laughs> uh, well, if you ever wanted to rekindle those uh, those ties, Bobby, um, on SeatGeek, every purchase is fully guaranteed, and... They grade every ticket based on the value to help you immediately identify the best seats that would fit your budget because you're not on that Brooklyn Nuts payroll anymore. So you have to be a little more conscious, I guess. Although ESPN's got a pretty big budget, too. You're right. I mean, if I'm looking for tickets, I can't be sitting on a front row anymore. I'm looking in those 200 to 300 level. And I know (laughs) SeatGeek's got the best prices there. If you act now, listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code HOOP today. That's promo code HOOP for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Oops. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Um, but did we ruin it? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I end up just cutting parts out and like stitching it together.
So this is a topic that we've ended up shelving a couple of times now.、Uh, best media dining room in the NBA. This is an endlessly this is an endlessly fascinating topic to me, and I like. I I think we should have like we run p- weekly power rankings for our teams. I feel like we need to up our we need to have this somewhere on the site.、Uh, I know a lot of people don't get to experience this, but it's one of the endlessly fascinating and one of the most discussed things in the league.、Uh, I know like me and Nick will sit there and, and break notes.、Uh, Detroit has gone to another level with yes, season, yes, like yes, unbelievable, like. I, they are, because they are Little Caesars Arena. Not only、uh, do they have the branding on the building, but they have their pizza, endless supply of pizza inside the building and breadsticks, and it is delicious and it is awesome.、Uh, it's it, I used to think Staples Center was pretty high up because of the soft serve machine, which I thank God is not in Boston because I would weigh six hundred pounds. But <laughs> Little Caesars Arena has vaulted to the top of. The the media dining power rankings this year and、uh, Nick, unless you can can convince me I'm, otherwise, I'm back on the Chris Forsberg way. I was off when he was when he was plugging spirits so hard. Yes, but I'm a little <laughs> Caesar's fan. I'm back on. I'm back on. <laughs> Because who who does? I mean, who who doesn't? I mean, that's probably is that the only place that offers pizza? A lot of arenas are offer pizza, but it's usually like I know in Boston, it's just like this. Random. I don't know. It looks like a DiGiorno. They throw out there. It's tr- it's trash. It's bad. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's... Toronto, <laughs> had, Toronto had some pizza last week, and same deal. It looked like it came out of the、uh, like you know out of the freezer.、Um, but like for to come legit, like if, if Boston wanted to step up its game, it would go to Papagino's or some local brand and like stock up. But no, man. Kudos to Detroit because it, it, that was used to be a really tough sell for NBA writers, especially when they were way out there in the middle of nowhere. And now it's like, get me on the next flight to Detroit.、Uh, if nothing else, I'm going to have a great meal. Okay, guys, Mr. Forsberg is a hundred percent right. A hundred percent right. Detroit has taken its game <laughs> to a level at which I have not seen in in my ten years covering the league. It is awesome. I mean, there were some cities.、Uh, Portland always stood out to me as having, you know. Some fresh salads or fruit. Not that I partake in those.、Uh, that <laughs> well, Portland has the,、uh, but they, well, have, they have the draft beer there too. Yeah, and、right? craft beer after、Portland. the game. But Detroit. I mean, Tom Gore is the owner. I, that's all I kept thinking, Chris. Because I've been to Detroit now a couple times. I'm thinking Tom Gore. <laughs> either he knows he's signing a larger check each night、uh, for this food, or he doesn't, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> He's got so much damn money that it's all good. But、uh, shout out to、uh, to Kevin and and Kalidas and the PR department for the Pistons. They were telling me like, no, you know, this food here is、uh, pretty good now. And I'm sitting because I guys for years, years, unless I hadn't eaten all day, I don't eat、uh, in NBA arenas at least for the the, the media and the the staffers dinner. I've had some bad experiences at the United Center early on. NBA teams don't understand how big of a leg up they can have on the rest of the league if they would just invest in making、so、some great food for the for the media and for staffers on a regular basis. And 
power to Detroit because it <laughs> is that good. Bobby, what what did you ever get like different food? Like, is there an executive spread somewhere? Like, no, get... we ate we ate with the media. Yeah, we would true. come in guys... there and plot. Well, I don't think we had to pay though, so that was probably the only true, benefit of true. that. We had those little those little um, tickets that we had to hand in there. But I tell you what, when we moved to Brooklyn. The, f- the spread in the PR room or in the media room was like like eating at a, like a first class restaurant. Like there was everything. Like they brought stuff over from like the Meadowlands. They had the hot dogs that used to be always great there. Ooh. They had the ice cream at halftime. You had like three different meals to uh, three different foods to eat before um, you know whatever you, you had pasta, maybe some fish. You had a little bit of steak, and then you know what happened was. We spent $100 million in luxury tax, and that went down to, like, sandwiches. <laughs> got to trim somewhere. That, and then I know the PR guys will hate me for it, but we, like, I went back in, um, you know, during this, uh, before the season, and even last year, and it, it was, like, half of what, at, you know, that was offered back in 12 to 12, 13 season mm-hmm. that, um, that um, they they, they initially uh, put out there. But uh, the Brooklyn food in the beginning was off the charts. When I go to Miami, um, and it's not about the food in the media room, but it's about there's a, a pretzel stand on the concourse Ooh. level that I will take two pretzels for the ride home, and that will be like my <laughs> – like I look – I actually just like going to Miami Heat games just because of the pretzels on the pretzel stand in the ride home. <laughs> it's the little things, baby. Yeah. I, I will give a shout-out to, to Nick Nick's hometown, Orlando. Uh not so much during the in-season food, but when Summer League was going on down there, they used to, like, one day they would bring in Chick-fil-A. And it was just, like, it was a war zone because there was, like, people throwing hands trying to make sure they got a chicken sandwich. And if they ran out before you got there, oh, that was just that was just dastardly. My favorite thing about meeting room dining these days is just, like, when you see the random player come in and eat <laughs> along with the, with yes. the staff. Like, because back in the day, like Andre Miller was like famous for going to the media room dining and eating there and just pocketing the, uh, the daily stipend and stuff like that. But like, you don't see it anymore. Cause like Bobby, I'm sure you're well aware, like the vast majority of teams like bring in food for their players for, before every game. So they have something like, I guess, quote unquote healthier to eat. So like when Rudy Gobert was injured, for example, and he was just like chilling in the media room at Staples eating hot dogs or whatever it is with everyone else is like, yeah. I like that. I want these guys just to eat <laughs> regular old food like the rest of us. Well, the the the, the, the catering for players <sighs> has gone to a different level. I mean, com- compared to when I came into the league in the '90s, I mean, now we feed guys on a game game day. You know, we give them breakfast, and, and before the game we give them dinner, and then after the game we give them a post game. And if we're um, if we are chartering. Um, you know, you got me a food on the plane, or if you're uh, playing away, you've got food in the hallway catered from a from a restaurant. And we we went through a stretch in um, where we would start catering from like Ruth Chris, Morton, wow. like and the bills, the total cost. Like my finance guy, I thought he was going <laughs> to jump off the roof. <laughs> and it got to a point where our players, like. I think it was um, – I don't, I don't know if it was Jonathan Abrams. Maybe somebody wrote an article in the Times about the catering of team planes. Mm-hmm. And Cliff Robinson came out and he was like, man, we get this Morton's and Ruth Chris every night. Like when are things going to like – like this food isn't even that good. Like, And we were like, we're spending like $5,000 <laughs> a plane flight. Because what happened was is that those restaurants are not um, used to catering for planes. So 
if they cook the, the steak medium rare, by the time it gets to the plane, it's already <laughs> medium. <laughs> it changes it changes the, uh, the the cooking temperature. But the yeah, I mean the amount of money teams spend on catering and having a chef or going above and beyond um, because there's no salary cap for that. You heard it here first. Uh, teams stop spending so much money catering for the players and put a little bit into the media dining room so that the rest of us can eat a little better. <laughs> put Little Caesars pizza and all pizza pizza. KBKP starts right now. Welcome back to a Tuesday edition of Hashtag KBKP. It's time to open up the old mailbag. We got anything in there, Kaylee? In the mailbag or the mailbag? Oh, no. Let's not get into it. We don't have time. Uh, yeah. We've got one from Judson Fonger. He asks, speaking to injury prevalence, when teams have well-rested and healthy, strength-wise, athletes, is the decreased fatigue-related injury risk muted by an increased level in dangerous athletic movement? See risk compensation economic theory. So risk compensation is basically a theory that when you make things safer, seemingly safer, they don't actually become safer because people just respond by taking greater risks. So basically think about, you know, adding a helmet to something like, you know, this supposedly should protect, you know, the human brain from these traumatic forces. But instead, when, you know, like or when skydivers have better parachutes, for example, then they start opening their parachutes later and it ends up equally risky, even though you've seemingly made it safer. So this is an interesting theory. I mean, I don't know in the NBA if it's true in quite the way that, that Judson seems to be thinking, which is, you know, sort of the, the kind of players choosing to, to make these dangerous choices when they're on the court, because, you know, one thing we do see, like an example of where there is an evidence of a link between fatigue and injury, uh, some evidence. Uh, a few years ago, Mike Pesca and I studied when in games ACL injuries happened. And there was a much greater risk of those injuries happening for players who had already played 30 minutes when you look at relative to all players who, you know, had played that many minutes than ha- happening, you know, kind of in the 15 to 20 minute range of minutes played. So it did seem like fatigue was increasing the risk of an ACL tear. And there's nothing you could do in terms of like, you know, these crazy movements early in the game that would like compensate for that in terms of risk. In layman's terms, though, like this would basically be equivalent to it's not necessarily about the athletes increasing their athletic movement. It would be the equivalent of like in the 60s when everyone was wearing like Converse All-Stars or something, but now they're wearing much better shoe technology that enables them to like cut harder or um, run in a less optimal but like faster motion, things like that. No, I think I think what he's saying, I think you're just talking about product efficacy. What, what, what Kevin is saying is that Derek Rose 
cannot feel any more or less comfortable wearing knee helmets. <laughs> that, that, that has some eyes. So, no, what I'm thinking, I mean, I think I, Han is along the same lines here. I think what's really happened is it's allowed the sizes and, you know, body types of players to change. The, you know, the, the, the improvements in terms of, you know, the, uh, uh, well, in terms of, I, I don't know why I can't think of the word, the equipment that Han is talking about, that sort of thing. So, you know, there wasn't a, uh, a seven foot three guy who was as athletic as Kristaps Porzingis ever before. And All that right. I think is what, yeah. And that I think is what maybe, you know, it starts to increase the risk factor is just that, You've got these players who are so much bigger, stronger, faster than before, and now they're able to do things that wouldn't have been possible for the seven foot three guy twenty five years ago. Wait, so, and you're arguing that that's a technology thing? I mean, not necessarily a technology thing, but maybe it's the case that you know, if there were players that this were kind of these kind of athletic freaks, that they would have been injured, you know, before they got to the NBA, that sort of thing, and never would have we never would have seen them be is is great outliers athletically as they have been before now they get the injured in the nba so i don't know i i mean that's just speculating all right we've got a question from friend of the pod sean rosales who asked is there a fix for teams tanking if (laughs) if an nba team were to declare they are tanking would it make sense to implement rules to make it easier while also discouraging this for example guarantee top lottery spots but less of a share of bri basketball related income or national TV games. Sean, do you have a problem with your being Yiddish now? Like, Kevin just took you straight to a shtetl. Sean Chazales. Hanukkah. I don't know. KP's pronunciation is, seems like that classic Spanish rolling R to me. No. The weird thing is I can't actually roll my R, so... See? I can, see, I pick it up on him. He's very, like, shalom about it. But, um... <laughs> This tanking question, I feel like there's a pretty simple answer to keep prevent teams from tanking, which is you give the number one, you give the most amount of lottery balls to the team with the seventh worst record. So it would be like a, like a bell curve almost. And so that lottery spot is constantly moving. So you can't be the worst team because the worst team would end up uh, with the same amount of probability to win the lot- the draft lottery as the team that just misses the playoffs, there's no incentive to be the worst then. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of ways to remove the incentive to be the worst. I mean, you could just, you know, not make the draft related to team record at all. So, no, but you know, that it's, eliminates it's the gambling. KP, that eliminates the gambling aspect, which is what everyone wants. Yeah, Do people, people gamble on the draft lottery? No, and it's like a form of gambling, right? Because there's a, a percentage yeah. that you can win it. So, like, that's... That's the excitement. Yeah, that's Kevin Funsucker Pelton. My personal favorite solution to this is that we determine like the order. You know, you can still have your lottery if you want it. We determine the order. It's like randomly chosen after the season. A date somewhere between the All Star break and the end of the season is where we cut off the standings. So if you lose a game on April fifth, you have you know there's like a I don't know, in that case, probably like a 10% chance that it actually counts in the standings. So odds are, you know, it could help you to lose, but it might not. 
and it doesn't incentivize teams to like need to win in that situation, which a lot of the solutions do. Like, you know, people will say, "Well, let's count the wins after you're eliminated from playoff contention." is is one popular solution. But then, you know, if you're incentivized to win, then that means all of a sudden you're playing older players. You're like grinding your players in terms of minutes played, and those I don't think are good things. I like the idea of player teams being incentivized to kind of experiment with young players late in the season. I just don't necessarily think they should benefit from it in terms of the draft or like feel they need to lose. How do you incent them then? I just think they should be indifferent to losing, basically. Like, ah, yeah. Well, because then wouldn't that do the opposite, even with experimenting with young players? If you're not trying to maximize what they can do because you're trying to lose, right? Isn't that kind of the opposite? Right, yeah. And I mean, the big thing I would like to take away that I do dislike about tanking is kind of like when fans get upset that their teams win games late in the season. Like, you remember this happened with the Knicks a few years ago when they won their last two games of, I can't remember if that was the season before they got Chris Dapps or or his rookie season, but like fans were up in arms about it. And it's like, wait, this is not right. Fans should not be upset their team is winning. Look, give the Knicks whatever they need, you know? (laughs) (laughs) KP, you're the only one that can answer this because KB has never heard (laughs) the theme song. (laughs) What theme song? I feel like it's been a while now since I've heard it, so I don't know if I if I can. Uh, oh wow! Theme song for what? Okay. Screw, it's right. screw both. But it's, it's not been a long. It's been less than twenty four hours since I've heard Ben McMahon's theme song. That? I just didn't listen through to the KBKP part of Friday's pod. Wow! 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 Why it was there? Uh, I, I threw this question in here just because uh, I like to pat myself on the back uh, from Mitch Alvarado. Uh, the catchier theme music, KBKP or the band McMahon song, personally, I want to wimp out and say push. And KP, I'm asking you this because everyone knows KB does not listen to podcasts despite regularly appearing on them. She may never have heard the band McMahon theme. despite. I have the fact no that idea what that on. is. Also, what does it mean oh, by wow. wimp out and say push? That means he's not going to pick. Because he likes them both equally. Oh, got it. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about, Avocado. <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard the theme songs. We, I didn't even know we had a theme song. Can you we hum do. it? I, I think Han like, texted it to us at the beginning, so you should know it. Oh, uh, I also don't read the text. <laughs> Han, wait, Han, hum it. Uh, Exclusive. I don't even know how it goes. That is pretty Seriously? catchy. I think it needs lyrics, though, to be quite as catchy as the Band McMahon theme song. Because I will find myself, like, when I see a tweet from Band McMahon, thinking about the Band McMahon theme song, which is great. And then the, the multiple extra verses that Jackie Mack has added to Tom Haberstroh's original great work. Look well, at KP always being first, the good McMahon. <laughs> Uh, last question is from Debt Life, who asks a business question, which is funny because Debt Life is missing the B and also subs the E for the Y anyway. He says, business question. 
Why doesn't the NBA structure contracts to represent a percentage of each year's cap as opposed to straight numbers? Couldn't that help ease the damage done by a lot of the bad contracts from 2016 that anticipated a continually rising cap? KP! Oh, I think we should absolutely do this. I I mean, it it definitely would have solved the problem of the rising cap in 2016 because what would have happened is if, you know, your contract called for you to get 10% of the salary cap as opposed to, you know, at that point, I guess it would be like $6 million. Then immediately when the cap had jumped, all every player's contract would have increased proportionally and it wouldn't have just kind of been the random luck of whether you happen to be a free agent in the summer of 2016 or not, which, you know, a lot of guys ended up getting really screwed by. Lou Williams is an interesting example where he was a free agent in the summer of 2015, the year before, and took what at the time looked like a really below market contract and now even more so three years, $21 million. And then now he comes up for free agency again in 2018, whereas uh, Brian Windhorst has discussed extensively on this podcast, now there's not going to be a lot of money for free agents this summer. And so he signed this three-year, $24 million extension and he's never going to make more than $8 million a year despite being you know, one of the certainly 50 best players in the league over that span. So why doesn't it happen? I mean, I think the, the biggest reason is players and management alike like the idea of this certainty of how much money they're going to get. And certainly, you know, if the cap were to go backwards, which it hasn't in a while, I'm not sure when the last time was that it went backwards, but... If a player then was getting less money the next year, suddenly this arrangement is going to look really worse to them. KP, you're my spreadsheet hero. <laughs> Have you ever seen my uh, my salary cap spreadsheet? It's quite extensive. Ooh, that, that's kind of a euphemism, didn't it? Is that your pickup line? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, your Tinder pictures are just screenshots of your spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> this interests you? <laughs> On that note, thanks for listening to this edition of Hashtag KBKP, and be sure to join us again on Friday. Wow, leave it all in, no edits.